0: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Biblical Studies, where we look at new books about the Bible from modern-day commentaries and art books to scholarly monographs and reference works. I'm Garrett Brown, the host of the channel. On today's program, I'm talking with Fleming Rutledge about her new book, The Crucifixion, Understanding the Death of Jesus Christ, published by Erdman's. Rutledge, having spent 22 years in parish ministry, has an international reputation for her preaching and teaching. Ordained to the diaconate in 1975, Rutledge received her Master of Divinity degree from Union Theological Seminary in New York in 1975, and was one of the first women to be ordained to the priesthood of the Episcopal Church in January 1977. She is widely recognized in the United States, Canada, and the UK, not only as a preacher and lecturer, but also as one who teaches other preachers. Her particular expertise is the intersection of biblical theology with contemporary culture, current events in politics, literature, music, and art. She has often been invited to preach in prominent pulpits such as the Washington National Cathedral, the Duke University Chapel, Trinity Church in Boston, and the Harvard Memorial Chapel. She is the author of many books, including God Spoke to Abraham, Preaching from the Old Testament, and The Battle for Middle-Earth, Tolkien's Divine Design in The Lord of the Rings, both published by Erdman's. A native of Franklin, Virginia, Rutledge graduated from Sweetbriar College in 1959, magnum cum laude, with highest honors in English. She was elected to Phi Beta Kappa, and in May in 1999, she was awarded an Honorary Doctor of Divinity degree from Virginia Theological Seminary. On today's program, we talk about the central motifs or themes of the crucifixion found both in the Bible and the history of biblical interpretation. Fleming Rutledge, welcome to the program.
1: Well, Garrett, it's a pleasure to be with you.
0: Uh, To begin, I suspect that many of our listeners would like to hear about your experience of becoming one of the first women to be ordained by the Episcopal Church. Um, You were ordained in January of 1977, And I understand that uh, that year about 100 women were ordained. What stands out to you about that time, looking back at it almost 40 years later?
1: Well, I was definitely one of the first because I was ordained in January. I was in the pipeline, so to speak. I'd been ordained already for two years as a deacon. And um, there were really not all that many who were ordained in that January month. Um, I don't know how many. 10, 20, something like that, and it certainly was a very exciting time, gosh, my ordination was quite an event, there were many, many hundreds of people, and there was a great deal of excitement and enthusiasm, and I hope it was a truly uh, significant event. theological, ecclesiastical experience for many people because a lot of people never go to an ordination at all, whether of a woman or a man. So I think it was pretty pretty wonderful. Um, Most of all, though, was the gratitude and the feeling of completion for what had been up to that time a very strong sense of calling ever since I was a child. Mm-hmm. So it really was wonderful, but it was just the barest beginning, of course, to a very lengthy number of decades um, of service in the Lord's Church, and that has been infinitely more memorable than the experience of being ordained. It's the ministry that was subsequent to being ordained that has been my life and that has been of such enormous importance to me, and I hope of some importance to a few others, God willing.
0: Yeah. Is it is it even possible to generalize about the way women have changed the character and ministry of the Episcopal Church? Because now we take it for granted. I mean, this is uh, yeah, 40 years on. Yeah, it,
1: it certainly is very much to be taken for granted. No question about that. I don't ever think about it anymore. I'm not the right person to ask about that, because I never have felt—I'm probably in the minority here—I have never felt that Having women around makes a great deal of difference. Um, I think women, like men, have specific gifts, specific faults, individual struggles, individual triumphs. Uh, I am not one of those that think women bring a particular sensibility to their work. Um, There have been women who have not agreed with me at all in the positions that I've taken and the stands that I have... um, taken up. So um, women are not a monolith. (laughs) I think that it's, my personal view is that women don't necessarily make all that much difference in terms of an atmosphere or a particular point of view. I've known women who've been very harsh. I've known women who've been very intellectual. I've known women who've been very masculine in their affect there are lots of different kinds of women, just as there are lots of different kinds of people.
0: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Okay. In the late 1990s, you published a book called The Bible in the New York Times, which, uh, if I believe I'm correct, invoked Karl Barth's idea that sermons should be written with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. And that seems to me to be a consistent thread in your writing, and I assume also your preaching. Why is that important, and is it difficult to achieve?
1: Well, let me just comment first that uh, although that was definitely what Carl believed, it has not been proven that he actually said that. Ah, okay, but it's it's one of those apocryphal sayings, But he certainly believed it, and I will be grateful till the day I die for the man, uh, Fred. Gosh, I can't remember Fred's last name. That's my age showing it'll come to me, um, a fellow clergy person, younger than I, but he was in my class at General Seminary. He is the one who suggested to me that I publish my sermons under the title The Bible and the New York Times. And that really is what launched me as a published writer. If I, if it hadn't been for that title, it, I, it would have taken a lot longer for me to become known as a writer. Mm. Uh, so that was a major event when uh, Fred... <laughs> um, intervened in that way. It was uh, a godsend, and I've always been deeply grateful. Mm-hmm. It's terrible that I can't remember his name, but I just, <laughs> and that has to be part of the podcast, and I um, apologize for being almost 80 years old. It happens to almost everyone that age <laughs> that you forget names. Yeah. In any case, um, all my life, I have sought through the news to see how God is working god is not waiting for us to do things god is already at work accomplishing his purpose raising up people and events casting down the proud and it's, it's not the way to, most people seem to think and this will get into the subject of religion most people seem to think of religion as a journey beginning somewhere and ending somewhere, and we are on this journey. I don't particularly like that kind of language, because I see the biblical story as one of God's journey to us, rather than our journey to Him.
2: Hmm.
1: And God is erupting into human life at the most unexpected times, and in the uh, most unexpected places, and in the most unlikely people very often. And so I resist the idea that we are in and of ourselves enabling God to do something, as though God was not able to do it without us. Mm -hmm. It's a theological distinction that I think is extremely important, and I think that the biblical stories from beginning to end illustrate this. When Jacob was by the river Jabbok, he was not looking for God. God jumped out at him in the dark. And Jacob was lame for the rest of his life as a result of that encounter. I think that's a wonderful biblical illustration of the way that God, as someone has said, seizes us from behind. Mm -hmm. He commandeers us. He doesn't wait for us to be spiritually ready. That's really important. Hmm.
0: Yeah. Well, in terms of uh, your – it's something I want to talk about a little later on in the interview. But with your engagement with the news or current events, you're really not talking about being relevant. I think it's my impression that you're you're really talking about a kind of engagement with the problems – uh, and suffering that confront us every day or lead us outside of our bubbles, is that right? Is it you know, is the is it that the news puts our concerns, many of which may be trivial or petty, in proper perspective? Or are you do, doing something different?
1: Well, all of the above. Uh, I'm amused by your use of the word relevant. The word is no longer fraught the way it was in the '70s when I was in seminary, late '60s, early '70s. Ah. in those days. <clears throat> The word relevant was uttered every five minutes in order to judge whether something was or was not relevant to the current struggles, and uh, a lot of us were trying to find synonyms for relevant, like pertinent, just in order to avoid (laughs) the word relevant, but I'm a child of the late 60s, and I was a little older. I wasn't in college, but my husband and I both went through the late 60s as though we had been college students, and we believed in a lot of the ideals of the student revolution. We certainly believed in um, the the civil rights movement. We certainly believed in uh, trying to stop the Vietnam War, and we believed in the euphoria of being a young rebel, even though we weren't any longer that young. Um, and I still have a lot of nostalgia for those days, although I don't have a romantic view about it. I know how it was, how flawed it was and how so many of the young rabble-rousers grew up to become just ordinary people in business and participating in the power structures just like everybody else. But all during that time, Christian thinkers, the ones I admired, identifying the movement of God in the current events of the day. And it seemed to me very clear that this is what God does. God does not just touch individuals here and there. He also stirs up human hearts to join together to proclaim his kingdom of justice and peace. You know, it's a fashion nowadays <laughs> to refer to God's dream. I don't know if your listeners have heard this idea hmm. I or haven't. not, but
2: no.
1: this is um, a familiar phrase in some circles today that, god has a dream well of course martin luther king's famous and immortal speech i have a dream um i suppose you could say that martin luther king was saying something about god's dream but not really he had a dream of what god was going to do which is different from saying that god has a dream and it's up to me to fulfill that dream Mm -hmm. it's a subtle distinction perhaps but it has to do with who the acting agent is. Now, for secular people or irreligious people or people who have no use for the church, um, the um, the language of God's movement in human history would not mean anything. And that's all right, because God can use people that don't believe in him anyway. Uh, and God clearly does that in Scripture. There are lots of famous passages in which God is moving in human history in the persons of people who don't even believe in God. And I, I love that. I, I think that's a tremendously important aspect of understanding who the biblical God is. Mm-hmm. Um. So... The most obvious example is the Civil Rights Movement, and I think we need to keep talking about the Civil Rights Movement because the the memory of Americans is very, very short, and all the people who were actually in the Civil Rights Movement, they're dying every day. There are very few left now, and uh, John Lewis, of course, uh, probably the most famous one still alive, maybe Jesse Jackson. But before long, there won't be anyone left who was actually alive and participating during the Civil Rights Movement. And they are very saddened, I have read, that the young people, young black people today, really don't have any sense of what they endured, what they suffered, what they um, were committed to. And the uh, Black Lives Matter, although there is some resonance from the black church in that movement, Oh, generally speaking, the Black Lives Matter movement is much, much less conspicuously Christian than the original Civil Rights Movement was. And it's a very, very important historically and Christianly to remember that the Civil Rights Movement was profoundly Christian in its origins and specifically in its nonviolence. Uh, Gandhi himself was greatly influenced uh, by Christianity when Hmm. he was in England, Mm
2: -hmm. and people
1: forget that. Gandhi didn't just make it up. Anyhow, um, the point of all this is to say that I have seen... I have seen, what is it, glory, glory, hallelujah, his truth is marching on. I've seen it marching on, and we see it marching on in historical events, not just in individual conversions, but in historical events. Take the apartheid movement, for instance, which mm-hmm. was full of Christian people, even though it was not by any means entirely a Christian movement the way the Civil Rights Movement was. But um, it a powerful, powerful uh, thrust in the apar- apartheid movement was from uh, the church and from uh, Dutch Reformed Christians and from um, Anglicans like Bishop Tutu and um, Geoffrey French Bader, who's not very well known today, but uh, suffered terribly and was imprisoned for his uh, support of the anti-apartheid movement. So there's a long, glorious history of resistance to evil, in the church, and I could go on about that at some length, about, for instance, the uh, cells in eastern Germany that were held in church basements. They were largely Protestant in that mm-hmm. case. Um, the cells, the Roman Catholic Church, uh, many, many cells of resistance in South America, Latin America in general. Um, we could talk about that at great length. Um, so. There's a very significant history that has um, become well-known in the 20th century. Not only of the greatest mass evils that the world has ever known, but some of the most significant movements of God that the world has ever seen. Mm-hmm. And I have always been passionately interested in that. I would recommend to your Listeners, that they try to get hold of a movie called No, N-O, which um, was made just a few years ago. It's about the No campaign in Chile, which eventually was instrumental in overthrowing um, the Pinochet regime in Chile. Ah. A very thrilling movie um, starring that very charming young Mexican actor. He's not so young anymore. What is it? Gail Garcia. I don't know how to pronounce his name. Gail Garcia Bernays or something like that. Oh, yes. He's um, a a lovely actor, and he's particularly good in this uh, film called No. It's an example of what I find (laughs) exciting about biblical history. Biblical history taking shape among us right now.
0: Maybe we'll, not as
1: much as I'd like to see it take place.
0: Yeah. Well, I think we'll keep coming back to this theme of, you know, the confrontation with evil. It's very much a part of uh, your argument. So I'm hoping we'll come back to that. Um, but let's just, you know, frame what your, uh, what your new book is about. Um, first off, I, I have to observe that it is a gargantuan, almost monumental work. Uh, it's 600 pages, for starters it's clearly and powerfully written, but the topic is, is very heavy. Um, you've done incredible work at synthesizing a broad range of, um, of material, not just the biblical text, but also the history of interpretation and then, uh, interleafing it with, with many of these examples that we've just been talking about and we'll come back to that. But, um, one of the first things that struck me, um, in your book was this distinction at the at the very beginning between religion and irreligion, and i've heard a variant of this before you know from some influential evangelicals like Tim Keller, who's the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church of New York City, who you know tries to separate out human effort or piety and self righteousness from divine effort or grace. But the way it functions at the beginning of your book, the distinction is quite different. Your definition is much more visceral and perhaps even more anthropological, and it's because you're focused on this central image of the crucifixion. Why is that not a religious image? And what uh, what is so um Topsy-Turvy about about the notion
1: Okay. I'm really glad you asked because this is important and it's fundamental to the work that I do. Um, There there are two figures that I would identify uh, particularly in this uh, discussion. And one is, again, Karl Barth, with whom this talk about religion is um, quite familiar. In his early work, he put a lot of emphasis on the irreligion of uh, Christianity he wouldn't have put it just that way, but he, his, his uh, famous uh, commentary on Romans, which was quite a bombshell on the playground of the theologians, as someone wrote, um, is full of a critique of religion. And the other figure, uh, talk about a critique of religion, is Sigmund Freud, whose uh, famous essay called The Future of an Illusion is to my way of thinking, the most profound um, description the most profound attack on religion ever written, and I think it's essential reading. Uh, Freud describes religion as wish fulfillment. It's been a while since I've read it, so I can't sum it up in the most literate way imaginable, but the general idea is that humans are full of wishes and needs, and we have an insatiable desire to conjure up some way of getting our needs and wishes fulfilled, and religion is the archetypal way of doing that, to project onto an imagined divine figure our own wishes and our own needs, and I agree with that. I think that's exactly what religion is well that sounds harsh I know <laughs> and uh, it's a polemical statement in order to get people's attention
2: mm-hmm.
1: but a great many people um, that I know personally and care about personally will say well you you just believe that because you want to believe that and I think that's a very important critique to make about mm-hmm. religion I, I respect that I respect it if a person really does seek to find a belief that is not simply a wish fulfillment. But the problem is that whether people are atheists or Christians or whatever, they're still creatures of wishes and needs.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And we're going to come up with some way to get our wishes and needs fulfilled or to try to get them fulfilled. Mostly we won't get them fulfilled, so we go through our lives in a state of rage that our wishes are not being fulfilled, and we take our our rage on this person or that person. Um, So I have a kind of neo-Freudian view of human nature. Mm -hmm. Um, But you see, I'm full of doubt every day, all day, every day. I wonder why I'm believing all this, and am I kidding myself, and why have I given my life to something that is so unpersuasive to so many people. And I keep coming back to the fact, and to me, it is a fact that no one who was seeking fulfillment to their wishes, their religious hopes and dreams, no one would have come up with a crucified God. And I think that's a very persuasive and compelling argument. There isn't anything in any human religion like a tortured, publicly humiliated, and degraded godlike figure. Now, all of the Eastern religions, I should say Near Eastern, excuse me, Near Eastern, what we call Middle Eastern today, the ancient uh, mystery religions of the ancient Near East, they had dying and rising gods. Mm -hmm. It was part of the uh, natural cycle that the god would die and rise again in the spring. But that's not even remotely like. Proclaiming a historical person right, the and the victim of this terrible mode of torturing a person to death is the son of God almighty Creator and of heaven and earth
0: right part of the part of the emphasis here, and I noticed the shift is that it's not the fact that he died, but it is how he died, and the fact that we actually don 't Really, fully appreciate. We tend to over spiritualize um, uh, the nature of his death, or don't focus on the vehicle of of his death as much as we ought. And uh, in in the book, you summarize it this way: you say the Christian faith glorifies as the Son of God a man who is degraded and dehumanized by his fellow human beings as much as it is possible to be, both by decree of both church and state, and that he died in a way designed to subject him to utmost contempt and finally to erase him from human memory.
1: Well, Garrett, thank you for reading that, because that does sum up, in a sense, the purpose of my book. Uh, It's not the whole purpose of my book, but it, it, it launches my book, because... People are so accustomed to the idea that, yes, Jesus Christ died, he was put to death, he was hanged on a cross. It doesn't mean anything to people unless you stop and investigate the idea and the reality of what happened to him. It's amazing to me how overlooked that has been in the history of religion. And still today... Mm -hmm. In a sense, my book is one of the very few, and there are some others, but it's one of the very few that has taken as its central, um, central problem to be solved, as it were. Why did God come in the form of a human being in order to die in this particular way? Why not? A nice, clean beheading, of course, to talk about a nice, clean beheading in our present day, Mm -hmm. when we see beheadings on television, is uh, in itself a somewhat um, extreme uh, thing to say, but um, beheading is a relatively quick and relatively, well, I'm not going to say relatively painless, who knows whether it's painful or not, because it's They don't survive to tell us. But I think the point is obvious that Jesus, a crucified victim, would suffer the tortures of the damned in public subject to the ridicule of the passers-by for hours, if not days. And Jesus had already been scourged within an inch of his life before he was put on the cross. Mm -hmm. So it really um, beggars, beggars the imagination to, to think of what a crucifixion was actually like. The, 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 the crucifixions that you see in the movies, they don't even approach the horror of what it really was like. I very much was taken by a sentence that was written by a secular journalist. I wish I could remember who it was. I think it might have been in The New Yorker. might have been in The Atlantic. Mm-hmm. But almost in passing, this writer said, Speaking of the crucifixion of Jesus, quote, he must have been ghastly to behold. Close quotes. Mm. I think that's a powerful sentence. He must have been ghastly to behold. First of all is the use of the word behold, which nowadays in biblical translations is translated look or see. And that's a great mistake because the word behold carries a lot of weight with it. The word behold in Hebrew and in Greek indicates that something revelatory is happening. So just to say, look, or see, does not carry the gravity of behold. So when this secular journalist says he must have been ghastly to behold, without realizing it, the journalist or the writer is calling attention to the fact that something revelatory is happening in this ghastly death. Mm -hmm. And what is that? What is happening? In a way, I almost hate to say it, because my book uh, supposedly, theoretically, moves toward a conclusion concerning this, and I sort of hate to give it away, but not many readers are going to read my book from cover to cover. In fact, I don't even recommend that to the average layperson. I suggest that people just read a chapter and see if it grabs them. Because only the very most um studious types are going to read the book from cover to cover, I do think the book is designed to be read as separate chapters if people prefer that mm-hmm. but in the, that. in the introduction in the introduction, I try to lay out the problem of the manner of Christ's death. And in the chapter called The Godlessness of the Cross, I go into this at great length, describing the method, describing the effects of the method, describing the way in which it was specifically designed by the Romans to be the most loathsome way of putting a person to death that they could possibly think of and making it public so that the crucified victims were hung up by the roadside where the maximum number of people would pass by spit at them yell obscene insults at them jeer laugh it's it's unbelievable mm-hmm. to us today yes this does happen in certain remote corners of the world but it doesn't happen in the united states or in europe um in civilized, so-called societies, this does not happen. So it's hard for us to fully imagine the ghastliness of crucifixion. Yeah. Why? 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 Why did God choose this?
0: When one of the passages that you use to crack this open and help us to really see uh, with fresher eyes how why this is why this stands out. Um, is in the first chapter of first Corinthians um, where the cross is referred to as a stumbling block to the religious establishment and a folly to the, to the Gentiles or the, the secular uh, public. Um, Good. What, you know, wh- what is, what is going on there? What is Paul referencing in such a clipped way that we almost miss it?
1: Well, it's good that you brought that up because it gives me a chance to talk about the Apostle Paul, who is well known to people, uh, even who do not know much about Christianity. They know that there was an Apostle Paul, and a lot of people think that he got hold of the simple teachings of Jesus and turned them into this elaborate religion, um, which is preposterous. But I can't take the time to explain why. Why that's preposterous, but it's a very, very common belief, even in the church. And Paul is huge, excuse me, hugely misunderstood, and I tackle that in the book. But it is Paul more than anyone else, except possibly, excuse me, I've got the hiccups, except possibly the um, evangelists Mark and Matthew, who include in their stories of the. Pa- passion um this so-called cry of dereliction my god my god why hast thou forsaken me except for the well the the two places to look for what i'm trying to get at are those passion narratives in general the cry of dereliction in particular the agony in the garden of gethsemane which is central and then the writings of paul and to some extent, the Epistle to the Hebrews. Those are the places where this question of the shame, the humiliation, the degradation, the dehumanization of the Son of God is brought to the fore. And when we're studying what that means, those are the places, above all, to look. Paul describes his gospel message as foolishness or folly. And he uses those words in as a contrast to the wisdom of philosophers and humanists and, and also of religious teachers to some extent because whenever wisdom, this is what Paul thinks, whenever human wisdom is detached from the crucifixion It becomes religion it becomes wish fulfillment it becomes something that is potentially possible to human beings whereas in paul's view of the gospel something impossible has happened and i think that all four evangelists in their own way uh bring that out that what has happened in jesus is humanly impossible The incarnation of God is impossible. The resurrection is impossible. And yet both of these things actually happened. That's the gospel. And it's crazy. So Paul says it's foolishness. The foolishness of God is greater than the wisdom of human beings. But most of all, Paul says, not only... Is the foolishness of God greater than human wisdom? The foolishness of God – now get this. The foolishness of God is the power of God, the dunamis, the dynamite of God. Hmm. The foolishness of God is the power of God. That's the unexpected thing that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1. Mm -hmm. Um,
0: And you also talk about this word that is roughly scandal the scandal of the cross. What, is, what did Paul mean there?
1: Yes, it's actually scandalon in Greek, which makes it easy to remember. The word scandal and the word foolishness are very similar for Paul. Um, the word scandal actually is stronger because it carries with it a greater sense of shock at something that's really, humanly speaking, preposterous, unimaginable, inconceivable. mm mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And I do put a lot of emphasis on that. And that's where the distinction between religion and irreligion comes. Religion is conceivable. It is, in fact, conceived out of human minds, I believe. I think that's, that's an argument that I want to stand by. If you look up the word religion or faith in the dictionary, you come upon all these words like ritual and system and uh, prayer and sacrament and all these different words, which are things that, well, not sacrament so much. Actually, you don't find that in the dictionary. (laughs) Um, Words like rituals, um, which are used as descriptions for religion. Also, the word belief, beliefs, rituals. Mm -hmm. Those are things that are produced out of human religious imagination. The human religious imagination is, as Calvin said, a perpetual factory of idols. (laughs) The human religious imagination is incredibly fertile, and we make golden calves all day, every day. Mm. Mm -hmm. God has destroyed all that by giving us a crucified Messiah. God has has destroyed all the golden calves. He has destroyed all of the wish, the wishes and the religious imaginings. And indeed, and this is controversial, but I will say he has destroyed all of our spiritualities. Mm. The word spirituality yes. has become the word of the day. It was not even known as a word until about the 17th century, I mm-hmm. have heard, have read. And it was never used in my youth. We didn't learn anything about spirituality in seminary or in biblical studies. And mm-hmm. I think it's—I don't think it belongs with the Christian faith. Mm-hmm. There's no such word in uh, the Bible.
0: Yeah, I'd like. It's,
1: uh, yeah, it's,
0: that's something I'm hoping we can come back to. I did have a question about that, um, and I, I want to be sure that we talk about the various themes and motifs that you spend a lot of time developing. Um, in the second half of your book, but before we do that, um, you do spend quite a bit of time talking about the notion of sin and death and elevating it to a power or dominion. And, uh, for instance, you write that the crucifixion of Jesus is of such magnitude that it must call forth a concept of sin that is large enough to match it. And okay. Well,
1: you've just given away my. <laughs> you've given away my punchline. That's okay. <laughs> okay.
0: Right ahead. Uh, but right I, ahead. I, I wondered. But with a sentence like that, uh, how how do we moderns even approach the concept, let let alone find it operative or real in our own lives? Um, and I'm I'm wondering, is this where the New York Times comes back into the picture?
1: Now I'm not sure I understood the question. Oh. Uh, would you rephrase that? I lost track of the pronoun you were using.
0: Ah, I, see. I see. Just in terms of, uh, you know, we moderns think that the notion of sin is so antique. Um, oh, the
1: notion of sin, uh-huh. And, and
0: that it's it's not really even something that we would apply to our own lives. Um, so when when you talk about the gravity and weight of sin, how is it that we find that concept— operative or real in our own lives. And I'm wondering, is this where the New York times comes back into play? Because we see examples of evil. We're confronted with evil in, in these other examples, but we also, um, it then also reflects back on us. How, how do you, uh, how do you think of, how do we connect with that problem of sin, um, in a way that we moderns can understand and appreciate in this context?
1: Okay. Um, Well, as I try to argue in the book, the word sin makes no sense apart from the living God. And so it's fallen out of usage because people don't have any sense of the living God anymore. (laughs) Uh, I say people, that's that's a very big generalization. But I think that there are lots of people in the churches who are sort of hanging on to a sort of hope, but don't have a sense of the living God. Um, in fact, I love what will Williman, uh the famous Methodist preacher, has said about um all the all the people out there who get a lot of publicity about debunking jesus the- the debunking Jesus is kind of a sophisticated uh fashionable movement of the day. I wouldn't have believed it fifty years ago, but it has become very fashionable to debunk and um minimize jesus diminish him well um... <laughs> diminishing jesus occurs will willman has piquantly said it's because everybody believes that jesus is dead it's easy to diminish someone and minimize someone and debunk someone who's dead but christians don't believe that jesus is dead We believe that Jesus is alive. And so, if we really believe in a living God, a living Savior, a living Redeemer, then the word sin becomes applicable. We can only talk about sin in the sight of a living God. Otherwise, we talk about evil. It's just a word. That has disappeared from our discourse. We talk about sin all day, every day. But uh, when we talk about the sins of others, we just don't call it sins. We call it corruption. (laughs) That's the word we're hearing a lot today. Corruption. Uh, Well, in the sight of God, corruption of whatever variety is definitely sin. Uh, living untruthfully is sinful, but we wouldn't call it that because we don't believe in a living God. So we call it something else. We call it being being a liar. Well, what is a liar? You're a liar. I'm a liar. We're all liars. We're liars. We all tell lies every day. Um, is that sin? <laughs> sin is such a huge concept that. Many scholars, especially scholars of Paul's writings, have taken to capitalizing it, capitalizing sin, because it's such a huge concept. It has much less to do with individual misdeeds than it does with power. And again, a capital P, the power, capital P, of sin, capital S. And we add to that death capital d the power of sin and death raid ranges around the world working its way with the with human beings and anybody who doesn't see that is not reading the new york times you know i was going to do another book called the Bible and the Wall Street Journal. I never have gotten around to doing that, but I don't uh-huh. want to. I try to quote from a lot of different things. But the news, New York Times is the so-called newspaper of record, so uh-huh. it's more convenient to use it. <laughs> um, but um, now, if we were going to talk about the uh, Gospel of, I mean, yeah, the Bible and the uh, and Fox News, we would have a completely different kind of book. Um, <laughs> speaking of sin when you have a whole institution caught up in a kind of culture of entitlement without any kind of payment to be made Mm -hmm. um, then you've got sin with a capital S we just don't call it that because we don't believe in God but it's it's true of, gosh, you know, all the saint schools in um, New England, St. George's, St. Mark's, St. Paul's, they've all, you know, all good Episcopal institutions, they've all been implicated in these horrible sex scandals, sexual predation by faculty and staff. It's ironic that the saint schools seem to be specializing in that. not just the saint schools. It's also Exeter and other very exclusive New England prep schools have been profoundly affected by these terrible predatory episodes that went on over a period of decades. Everyone blames the Catholic Church. It's so mis- so wrong to single out the Catholic Church as being the only place where this goes on. I've seen it in business. I've seen it in all kinds of circles having Little Or nothing to do with the church, my point here is that sin deserves a capital s and it deserves to be discussed and and thought about conceptualized as a huge global universal power with a capital p
0: right and this it 's an important part of uh, the setup of your book to emphasize that, and I think it is teased out by a lot of Uh, your footnoted references to, you know, Rwanda or Abu Ghraib, or, or even to broken marriages. I mean, you, you mention the range of, of things, but I want to make sure we have enough time to talk about um, the way that you handle the various motifs or themes of the crucifixion. Um, It's really the most original part of your work. Um, And it, it gave me a sense that a lot of, these debates that go on about justification or whatnot are really – that's just one motif of many. Um, can you explain a little bit about how you arrived at this idea of themes and motifs and then what are they?
1: All right. Uh, thank you for asking that because it is important. Um, I, uh, For your listeners who are not aware of or even interested in what goes on in the churches, I will just say quickly – that there's a lot of dispute in the churches about exactly what Christ's death on the cross signifies. Um, If you ask various people, you're going to get a lot of different answers. And when I was very young, I began to be very disturbed by the snippy things that groups of Christians were saying about other groups of Christians concerning the crucifixion and its underlying significance. I noticed that various lordly seminary professors would go around to churches and say, the things that you've always believed about the cross simply aren't true, we don't believe that anymore. That was very disturbing to me, and uh, I thought it's been sort of a lifelong project to track that down. Uh, literally a lifelong project, because I was quite young when I started hearing these um, very distinguished, uh, at least within church circles, distinguished uh, scholars not only fighting with each other about what the crucifixion meant and means, but saying things to Lay people that were very dismissive and made the lay person feel stupid, and <laughs> it really bothered me. So I've um, I've began a lifelong search for the meaning, explaining, understanding what happened when Christ was crucified and why that was. Why did he die in that way? And it seemed to me that that was at the very heart of the Christian faith. And yet people weren't talking about it, or if they were talking about it, they were being dismissive of it and shifting all the attention to the incarnation and the resurrection. And Let me make it very clear that we can't have any of those three without the others. The incarnation of God in human form, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem under Pontius Pilate, and his resurrection on the third day. Those three key points in his life are indispensable to the gospel. They are the center of the gospel and they can't be detached from one another. Hmm. And I've tried to say that over and over and over in my book. We're not just talking about the crucifixion. When we talk about the crucifixion, we're talking about the crucifixion of the incarnate God who was raised on the third day, and who lives forever, and is present to us in power through the Holy Spirit? So, in view of that, what does it all signify? Now, I've lost—I got so carried away with that I forgot what your question was. So well, just
0: in terms please, of how—how how is it that the? the uh the history of biblical interpretation oh, I know. you has... were
1: talking, yeah, you were talking about the different motifs,
0: yeah, what all are right, they? so
1: the so the more I read the Bible and the more I studied it and and it was much later after I heard all these uh, these dismissive comments by various scholars. It was only after that that I got into seminary and started reading scholarship for myself, and I began to see how complex the questions were. And how uh, there was there was a good deal of justification for some of the arguments, but I thought less than compelling justification for some other arguments. So I began to concentrate on all the different things that the New Testament says about the death of Jesus, and I noticed that there were so many of them. And so I divided them up into categories, and I wrote. I think there are eight chapters in the book in which I examine the various ways that the New Testament presents the significance of Christ. The New Testament is, uh, the the Bible, the Old and New Testaments, are not books of philosophy, they are not books of religious theory, they are stories.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And so what is the central gospel, the good news, in these stories? And how are we to understand how the crucifixion fits into them? So I divided up the themes into eight chapters. I think I don't have it right in front of me, but, for instance, the theme of sacrifice. Many people are now saying, well, we don't want to talk about sacrifice anymore. And I absolutely resist that. I think we talk about sacrifice all the time. I believe this is September 11. The papers are full of the sacrifices that people made that day. Sacrifice is a word that we use all the time. It's a very common word, and it's a very understandable concept. And it's, it makes me quite indignant that people are lawful When I say people, I'm talking about interpreters, some scholars, some not. But people who are interpreters of the faith, the Christian faith, are saying, well, we really need to get rid of the concept of sacrifice. That's not useful to us anymore. It makes people uh, suffer. And uh, it's it's unhealthy to concentrate on suffering. Well, this is. I I realize I'm caricaturing it a little bit, but I'm trying to be quick in getting at the point. Sacrifice is a basic human concept, and it lies at the heart of um, what Christ did. And when I say a human concept, I don't mean that Christ's sacrifice is a human concept. I've tried to make that clear that it was not a human concept. But the concept of sacrifice is very familiar to every human society. Um, Another chapter is about the Passover and the Exodus, because throughout the uh, early Christian years, and this is reflected very much in the uh, New Testament, uh, Jesus Jesus' death and resurrection are interpreted as the new Passover and the new Exodus. So there's a chapter on that. There's a chapter on the descent into hell. That's the chapter that means the most to me. It's yes. controversial. Excuse me. Yes, I, of, I wondered
0: if you would, uh, would talk a little bit about that. Is that the Christus Victor? Uh,
1: no. Well, yes and no. There's uh-huh. two separate chapters. There's one on the descent into hell. And then there's a separate chapter on Christ the Victor, Christ the Conqueror, which is known by the Latin phrase Christus Victor, and uh, that that has a, that's a very popular theme today, and with good reason, and it should be, and it's a very powerful theme in the New Testament.
0: And these are these tie into uh, what would be called eschatological um, considerations or cosmic. Is very large. Yeah, but
1: now let me put that on hold for just a minute because uh I want to finish just one oh, yes, thought. yes. Uh, the um there are two more ways of thinking about jesus death uh which are primary and one of them is uh substitution that Jesus died in our place instead of us, and then finally there is recapitulation, which is a complicated concept, but let me just. Try to make it sound simple by saying that Jesus, who was without sin, lived a sinless life and thereby recapitulated the life that we were meant to live, mm-hmm. perfected it, took it to the grave with him, and raised it from the dead. Therefore, he is called the new Adam. The old Adam. Speaking mythologically, the old Adam brought the human race down from paradise into the reign of sin and death. Christ descended from paradise, if you use mythological language. Christ descended from heaven, became incarnate, entered into sin and death, went into the grave with it, and rose victorious. That's recapitulation, Hmm. so-called. That's a very important theme of interpretation in uh, the New Testament. So, um, what I try to do is to show how there are a lot of other, there's a ransom theme and um, other themes that I have examined, but those are the most important ones. Yes. And I'm arguing that each of them is important and that none of them should be thrown in the trash and that all of them should be allowed to speak. The theme of substitution has been uh, spat upon in recent years and I find that very unchristian and unbiblical and uncharitable and very difficult to understand. Mm -hmm. Why do we not want to say simply that Jesus died for us in our place and on our behalf? Mm -hmm. Why would we not want to say that? Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Well, anyway, so back to your question.
0: Oh yes. Well, um, I mean, each one of these is a, each one of these chapters is a substantial meal in itself. And I think what, uh, was impressive to me is that you uh, that out of these things which often get focused on to the exclusion of another, um, you see a, a much grander vista of the various motifs um, that are actually um, not quite in tension with each other, but in conversation, and uh, and then in some ways they reinforce uh, each other, but. Um, In your penultimate chapter, you know, as we kind of draw the conversation to a close, I wonder if we could go back to this notion of religion and irreligion. Because in the penultimate chapter, you talk about this, the radical implication of the crucifixion is that there's actually no longer a distinction between the religious and the irreligious. Can you explain what you mean by that?
1: I'll try to. I get the the idea from um, Paul, who says, there is no circum there is no longer circumcision or uncircumcision. Paul's vision, which comes to a climax in the ninth, tenth, and eleventh chapters of the Epistle to the Romans, is, I believe, along with certain passages from Isaiah, the most comprehensive vision, of salvation that has ever been presented in human history. And because it is grounded in a crucified and risen Messiah, I believe that it is not religion but revelation. Now that requires faith, and not everybody has faith, and we don't understand that. But Paul concludes his sweeping, universal vision by saying at the end of Romans 11 that God has consigned the entire human race to disobedience in order that he may have mercy upon the entire human race. Now, that is the most inclusive sentence I would venture to say that has ever been written.
2: Hmm.
1: And it sweeps aside human achievement. It doesn't say that human achievement is not important or that it doesn't exist or that we should give up on it. What it says is that the distinctions that human beings make are only penultimate the distinctions that God makes are ultimate and God's distinctions are beyond our imagination and they include the kinds of restitution and redemption that human beings are incapable of conceiving God can do things that we cannot do. He can raise the dead and call into existence the things that do not exist. Paul wrote that as well. To anyone who might be listening who thinks that maybe Jesus Christ might have some meaning for them personally, I would just want very much to say that there is no other religious system and indeed no religious system at all and no irreligious system either that offers the comprehension the universal significance and the ultimate inclusiveness of the Christian gospel as i understand it through the new testament
0: well I, I can't tell you how much I wish that we could continue our conversation. Uh, there's so much that we've missed, um, but I do recommend to our listeners that they uh, take a chapter and start there and, um, and see where it leads them. Um, it really is a, a monumental work, and I really appreciate the, uh, the time that you've given me today, and uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed the conversation.
1: Well, you're a very perceptive reader. thank you for that because one does not meet that every day
0: Uh, well it's been a great pleasure that concludes my conversation with Fleming Rutledge about her book The Crucifixion Understanding the Death of Jesus Christ published by Erdmans please join me again to hear about other new books in biblical studies to learn about new programs as they are posted you can follow the channel on Twitter at New Books Bible as always thank you for listening